A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Alan. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got a slightly different format. We've got a CMO and their head of the agency that they use for digital marketing. Today on the show, we've got Carrie Benkowski, CMO of Peapod. Peapod is an online order and delivery service for groceries. And we've got Vic Drabicki from January Digital. Vic is the founder and CEO of January Digital. January is a digital marketing agency, consultancy, and analytics firm that works with brands ranging from David's Bridal to Diane von Burstberg to Oscar de la Renta and Vineyard Vines. And Carrie is CMO of Peapod. She was formerly head of fashion for eBay based in London. Before that, worked for another couple positions at eBay and spent 10 years at Procter & Gamble before that in general management and brand management. Today on the show, we look at Peapod's business, how it's ranking against its competition, how they're developing plans and digital strategies to outflank, if you will, the likes of Amazon. And we get to learn a little bit about Carrie and Vic and who they are as people, as we usually do on the podcast. I hope you enjoy this new format and enjoy the show today with Carrie and Vic. Welcome to the show, Vic and Carrie. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning, Alan. 
<laughs> Good morning. Well, Carrie, let's start with you. And let's start, if you wouldn't mind describing Peapod for listeners that you know, may not be customers yet, or maybe in geographies that you might not serve yet. Yeah, great. Happy to. So Peapod is an online grocery service, basically an online grocery store offering home delivery or pickup. We were actually founded in 1989, about six months prior to the internet. So we take great pride in being slightly older than the internet. We currently serve 24 markets, primarily in the Midwest and on the East Coast. And we are actually part of a larger Amsterdam-based retailer called Ajo Deles. So in our Midwest markets, we operate as a pure play, what we call a pure play ecosystem commerce retailer. In other words, we don't have a physical brick and mortar presence, but on our East Coast markets, we because we're part of Ajo Deles, we operate under the banner of Stop and Shop in New York and Boston, uh, Giant Food in Philadelphia and the Washington DC area and Giant Martins in also in the Philadelphia and Central Pennsylvania areas. We've delivered over 45 million orders since our inception, which in our industry we say that's a lot of bananas, and we offer everything a traditional grocery store uh, fresh, frozen, non-perishables. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. So 1989, that's, to your point, before the internet, I would love to hear what the, you know, maybe the evolution of Peapod has been, but also evolution of the grocery delivery in general. Yeah, well, it's, it's a pretty interesting history. I mean, let's not forget that once upon a time, it was totally mainstream to have your groceries delivered to your home, you know, not just milk and eggs. So what changed? It was the advent of refrigeration, the rise of individual car ownership, and probably to a certain extent, the development of the suburbs and the modern grocery store and mega stores. And I think that that's really what grocery looked like for the last 20 or 30 years. But really what's changing now, called it in the last three to five years in particular, in the last uh, 24 months is access to technology. Also, I think from a demographic standpoint, there's a significant increase in the number of dual working households. So there's an increased demand and expectation for convenience enabled by technology. And, you know, of course, let's we, every conversation has to include a discussion about millennials, right? So this is the digital native generation that are coming into their formative shopping years, setting up their households. And, and for them, shopping online is, is just shopping, right? And there's a general acceptance that anything, everything ordered online and delivered to the home. So I think that's really where we are right now is that it's this combination of the technology is available. You have some demographic things that are happening in the marketplace. And I think the other thing that's really changing is the retailers themselves are realizing that there is a demand for this. And so I think that the availability of services has actually increased the demand over time. Well, grocery delivery is an increasingly competitive space. You know, you've got Amazon has acquired Whole Foods and, and you've got other competitors in there as well in the marketplace. And then, you know, you had the, the old startups, if you will, the web vans of the world that have dropped out of the market. They were kind of the pioneers in some respects. It's a, like you said, a grossly evolving landscape. How are you positioning yourself to beat out competitors and probably most interested in Amazon because it seems like a wild card at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And and we really view it as it's, it is not a zero-sum game. When you're operating in an industry that is growing, we believe that there is room for many w- winners. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't watch the competition closely. And that certainly doesn't mean that we're not a little bit paranoid. You know, only the paranoid survive in this industry. But it is interesting to see many more players come into the marketplace But here's the interesting thing about online grocery is that one of the things that we talk about is is success becomes a problem. And what I mean by that is 
there, it's it's relatively easy to do online grocery home delivery in small quantities. A lot of the the players that have come into the market have have started either with pickup, which is easier to do because you don't have to solve for the last mile logistics that that really is if you go back and look at the history books, that's what imploded the web vans and the cosmos of the world is is that the costs quickly spiraled out of control because they weren't set up to be efficient in terms of the packing and the shipping and the delivery. So that is something that can, you know, that has <laughs> scuppered many a competitor in this industry. So you can start small, but and a lot of the other players that have come into the marketplace, they've either started with pickup, which is it certainly makes sense because you don't have to solve for the last mile logistics problem. But what we see, because we offer both delivery as well as, as pickup, that when you offer both, customers will overwhelmingly choose delivery. doesn't mean that, that there isn't a role and a space for pickup. It, and for some people that works. And in fact, we have a lot of our customers that use both delivery and pickup, which is pretty interesting. So I think that there is a space for that, but the real volume is in the home delivery. But that's very difficult to do from a logistical standpoint. And it's also very expensive, obviously. I think the other thing that people get tripped up in and it has created challenges is that a lot of folks are starting with what we call store pick. So they're actually picking the groceries from the physical stores that exist. And over the last 30 years, we've learned a lot about last mile logistics. We've learned a lot about how to make our routing really efficient. But we've also learned a lot about what's the most efficient way to pick and pack and order. And what we've learned is you you really need to do that through centralized distribution facilities. The centralized facilities that we have are not structured. They kind of look like a grocery store in the sense that there are products on shelves, but they are not structured like a traditional grocery store because a traditional grocery store is not structured to be shopped efficiently, right? It's structured to get you to the back of the store to pick up your gallon of milk and then pick up things along the way. If stores were, if if physical grocery stores were structured to be shopped efficiently, the milk, butter, and eggs and bread would all be at the front of the store and no one would ever go to the back of the store, right? So (laughs) that's part of the industry insight is around everything that is done end to end in terms of the the picking, the packing, and then that last mile logistics has got to be done in the most efficient way possible. And I think that's what has tripped up many a competitor. And I think that's really what everyone's trying to figure out, particularly that last mile logistics equation. Yeah, it, it sounds like, I mean, quite elaborate operation, if you will, from you know all those different components. But I love the idea that you're, you know, you're providing both pickup and delivery. You're enhancing convenience in the experience for customers, how they want to shop and then letting them drift to whatever one makes sense for them, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And I think the it's what I'm struck by is sometimes the conversation is around do we offer delivery or do we offer pickup? And, I, and the analogy I use, it's almost the same conversation that we had, you know, back in 2006, 2007, when smartphones, you know, the rise of the smartphone, you know, do we build a, do we focus on our desktop experience or do we focus on our mobile experience or do we focus on our app experience? And it's the wrong question, right? It's really about you have to offer options and choices and the customer will decide how they want to access your brand or your service. And I think we're seeing very similar things in terms of the online grocery that it's it's not a binary choice between pickup or delivery. You have to offer both because sometimes the customer needs to have something delivered to her home and sometimes she wants to pick it up. You just got to offer both. Nice. Well, let's bring Vic in. Vic, you're the founder and CEO of January Digital, a, a dig- full service digital marketing agency and consultancy. Let's talk about the digital strategy for Peapod and how you're helping them reach their key customer segments. Sure. You know, for us, 
we always look at Peapod and we always break it down into three chunks. Number one, data. Number two, geography. And number three, messaging. And you have to break them down in that order. And here's why. What we know about grocery delivery and what we know about Peapod's business and, and most other grocery businesses is that margins are thin, but you have a ton of data on your customers. You know what products they buy, you know what their propensities are, you know what products get them to buy more, what products get them to buy less, so on and so forth. And so by starting with data, we have a really clear view of who we're targeting and why. The second thing we have to consider is geography. You know, Peapod isn't a nationwide service. And so for us, we have to make sure that what we know about people, we're now targeting them exactly in the markets that we want. It does us no good to know a ton about someone who moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, where we no longer have an, have an opportunity to deliver to them. So we've got to really hit the geo-targeting just right. And finally is messaging. And the reason messaging has to come third is if we know the customer and we know where they're at, the message has to be really clear and really targeted. It does us no good to advertise to people in New York City about an upcoming outdoor barbecue. Anybody that lives in New York City knows that there's not a single spot in the city to have a barbecue. So that wouldn't do us any good. And so for us, it's all about, you know, going repeatedly going through each of those three things, data, geo messaging, customizing each piece, being as targeted as we absolutely can. You know, Carrie talked a little bit earlier about a lot of the competitors in the marketplace. You know, because there's so much competition, you know, costs definitely can be an issue. But if what we found is if we can really target in really well on those three pieces, both Peapod and our campaigns are going to be successful. Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about cost because, you know, the old mantra is you know, national creates some level of efficiencies. And so, you know, as you sub segment and things like that, logically you think, well, it might cost me a little bit more, but I'm going to be you know, hitting the right people. So how are you helping wade through that with Peapod? I mean, number one, it'd be really great if Amazon could stop advertising. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, I mean, look, I don't think it's any different for Peapod than it is for any of our other clients or any other businesses or marketers out there, right? Generally speaking, you can kind of attack costs in a couple ways. One, you can say this media is too expensive, so I'm going to opt out of it and do something that I think is cheaper. Or two, you can say it's okay for me to spend more dollars because this media is more effective than the cost increase. And so for Peapod, the approach we've taken is very much Let's find highly targeted, highly effective media, and let's make sure that the effectiveness outweighs the cost. I know that sounds a little bit simple, but it gets more complex because not every medium offers the same consistency in pricing. For instance, on Facebook, the year-over-year costs on Facebook are up almost 100%. Not for us, just sort of industry-wide. Right. And so if that's going to happen, we have to make sure that our targeting is 101% better. And that takes more than just us being good at marketing. It takes Carrie and her organization being great at collecting data, processing it, giving us access to it, doing it quickly, we, you know, using all the analysts on their side to help us build the right predictive models, things like that. So for us, the approach we've definitely taken to help bite those costs is to make sure that we are uber, uber, uber targeted. And when we do that, what we find is our, the rate of effectiveness increases far faster than the rate of costs have for the past couple of years. Interesting. Well, what do you, you know, Vic, let's stay with you, but Carrie, feel free to chime in. Where do you see the future digital marketing strategy? How do you see it evolving over time? I mean, you, you just talked about, you know, Facebook is up, you know, industry-wide costs are up on Facebook, but where do you see the future going for digital? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, there are a couple things, a couple larger digital trends that I think it, it'd be smart for people to be aware of. One is costs are increasing. 
you know, again, Facebook year over year is up about 100% CPMs. Google is seeing spikes in costs. Almost all digital marketing channels are getting more expensive. But we've got this counter trend too, which is consumers are starting to become more protective of their data. You know, when we think back to the question before this of, hey, as long as we have great data and we can target a little bit better, then we can handle the increase in costs. Well, those two things are working against each other. And no one's quite sure, myself included, which one's going to win out, right? Are costs going to stop increasing or are people going to care a little bit less about what data they share? And we're not quite sure. But what we know is that when it comes to Peapod and some of our other clients as well, we think there are three things that, that really can help us predict our, our control our future and control our, our future results. Number one is continue doing what we are doing, right? You want a foundation of things that are very consistent and very predictable. Whenever you do that, your business has some consistency. Uh, You have these less giant hills and giant valleys. And and when things become a little bit more predictable, uh, things are easier to manage. Number two, we have to be extremely flexible. I can guarantee you the day Whole Foods or Amazon bought Whole Foods, we had to be able to turn around and figure out how to change, where to change and why. And number three is, is testing. And I think this is the one that most people actually miss out on. People generally come to you every year, want you to do the same thing and expect a better result or uh, expect that if you test something, it's going to work immediately. And I think that's the wrong approach. What I believe is, is that if you are successful 100% of the time, then you're being too conservative 100% of the time. We should expect a fail rate of somewhere between 10 and 15%. And if you have that, that means you're pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. And that means you're always going to be progressing and evolving. And I think that's one of the things that's really great about Carrie and the Peapod organization is that they really have embraced all three of these things. They're flexible to be able to change marketing strategies where we need to. They know what works and and they've really established as a foundation, but they're also very open to testing. And I think that combination will help Peapod be really successful over the short and long term. like that. And those three points are very valid. I mean, and the testing component, having a stable of clients myself, you know, the testing can be scary. So Carrie, I don't know, you know, how you think about allocating funds to testing, but as you think about the future marketing, I don't know, uh, future marketing strategy, if you will. I don't know if you want to add a comment there or not. Yeah, listen, if you're not testing, you're not really living, right? I think Vic really highlighted the key points and testing is not an activity. It's a cultural mindset. And I don't think any organization can not test if they're operating in a digital marketing environment. The the technology and the landscape changes far too quickly to assume that whatever somebody is doing today is future proof for, you know, even two weeks, quite frankly. But I, I think the the pieces that Vic really touched on are are the key themes. I mean, as as I think about it, that future digital digital marketing strategy. It's not rocket science. It's based on data. It's based on content and it's based on customer journey optimization. Now, executing against that gets really complicated, right? But we also always come back to the fact that we have the golden egg. You know, I worked on the, in the sense that we have first party data and and Vic mentioned that, and we have a lot of it. We know who every customer is. We have an email address. We have a phone number. We have a physical address. That's incredibly valuable, but it also comes with a huge amount of responsibility to use that data wisely and to protect that data. But it's also an interesting dynamic of we're operating in an industry that is not a discretionary purchase. And not only is it not a discretionary purchase, it's a purchase that happens really frequently, right? Everybody eats. Everybody has to eat. So when you think about the number of times an individual could potentially be shopping off our website, it's weekly, if not more than that. And we have customers that are using us 
50, 60 times per year. And the average basket has over 55 items in it. So when you start, you know, you think about the multiplier effect of the weekly shopping purchase, the number of items that go into a basket, that's an incredible amount of data and it's first party data. So that starts to add up, but data is only data. It's not necessarily insight and it's certainly not actionable. So one of the things that we have chosen to invest in is a data management platform to really harness the power of that first party data, but to harness it in such a way that we are respecting and adhering to all of the privacy regulations. But it's also really out of the recognition that our our customer base is actually pretty diverse. Again, everybody eats, right? But we also know that our customer base, while it may be very diverse, people are using us for different reasons and for different motivations and for different lifestyle needs. So for example, we have a portion of our customer base that are using us because they physically can't get to the grocery store or getting to the grocery store is is really, really challenging. So Peapod is providing a really important service in their lives. But we also have people that are using Peapod also for convenience. They can get to the grocery store, but they'd really rather not. So the content that you push to those and, you know, finding like-minded individuals with a data management platform enables us to identify those folks with our first party data and then create lookalike modeling. And it enables us to find, you know, I'm going to almost call them tribes, you know, those tribes of individuals that are motivated to use Peapod or could be motivated to to try Peapod for similar reasons, but the content that's going to engage them and motivate them might be very different. In some content, we might be talking more about inspiration and solutions. Other content might be really around value and stocking up. Other content might be about some of the nutritional benefits of shopping online and that first party data and the combined with the DMP enables us to do that much more smartly. And then of course, you know, you've got the data, you've got the insights, you've got the content, but then it's really about optimizing that customer journey because sometimes, you know, your ads are writing check are writing checks that your website can't cash, right? So you may have a great ad that's really engaging and is getting a huge number of clicks, but if they're coming to your website and bouncing, you're only half baked. So that's the other piece of it for us is really, I think that that's a big learning that we've had because we've been testing is to really really understand that it's not just about creating great content that gets pushed through our various different channels. We've got to make sure that we get that content optimized throughout the entire customer journey up to and including the landing pages. Got it. Alan, if it's all right with you, I'd like to jump in because I think Carrie really nailed it on that last point. I think one of the things that's really challenging being at a marketing agency is that people think marketing solves all of it. And if you go and you look at budgets, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars pointed directly at marketing, which you know converts it, we'll just say 1%. And there is tens of dollars spent on actually optimizing the conversion process. And I think that's a miss for a lot of marketers. And I think whenever you're able to balance those a little bit more appropriately, again, I'm not saying cancel all your marketing and put it all into conversion optimization, but I think when you can balance those things a little bit more effectively, then the results that you get from your campaigns you know, really skyrocket. You know, if you took your conversion rate from one to one point one percent, you just added ten percent to your business, which is a silly thing. But you know, I think people often miss that last part that, that Carrie just spoke of, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people that if they'd spend another minute on would see marketing perform significantly better. No, that's a great point. Great point on a point. <laughs> well, you know, maybe this is for Carrie. Carrie, are you, you know, as you think about competitors, are you trying to avoid Amazon in the digital strategy that you're executing? How do you think about you know, working in such a competitive landscape? 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, honestly, we're not about avoiding anyone. I think that now, pragmatically, that that probably changes a little bit when we start thinking about things like AdWords and, and, and paid search and, you know, which keywords and which branded and non-branded search terms. So, you know, of course, it does play into things like paid search strategies. But I think more broadly, more holistically, we're not avoiding anyone. It's really about finding those people and those tribes that I talked about for whom Peapod is is a meaningful service and, and can add benefit and convenience to their life. I mean, I've worked on a lot of brands and I've worked in a lot of different industries. And, and one of the things that I'm really struck by about Peapod is th- the level of emotion that people will talk about when talking about this brand and this service. And one of the questions I love as a strategic brand marketer is to, when you're trying to get under the skin of who are you, what is your brand, what is the role that it plays in an individual's life? And a great question to ask a customer is, what if we were to take brand X away? And nine times out of 10, people are like, eh, I'd find a substitute, right? I'd move on to the next thing. You don't get that answer with Peapod. You know, people, it's very emotional. It's, you know, please don't take this away. You know, I love Peapod. It's changed my life. I mean, the language that they use is really, really emotional. So there's something to that. And so, you know, recreating that in a digital environment, that's the challenge that we face every day. But I think the other thing that we do too, there's that emotional aspect of the service and the ability to engage with folks on a benefit level that's not about, you know, we're not getting clothes cleaner, like we are changing people's lives and we're giving them their time back. It's a very emotional end benefit. The other thing, though, that more pragmatically, when we think about what we're doing strategically in some of our digital channels is is recognizing that because we are part of a bigger brick and mortar operation, we have a massive customer base or potential customer base that has bought into the proposition of our parent company. So Stop and Shop or Giant Martins or, or Giant Food, they've bought into the value equation, they've bought into the quality of the produce, they've bought into the overall grocery experience. But what's interesting is that the penetration of our brick and mortar customers is in the single digits. So we've got 90% of our existing brick and mortar customer base that, that we can go after. And in partnership with Vic and January Digital, that's another piece that we're looking at is how do we geo-target literally down to the store level so that we can better get 
and have a conversation with those prospects that we know have already bought into the grocery proposition of our parent company. Then it's just a matter of nudging them into online grocery. And what we find is that when we do that, people, we actually gain share of wallet across the total retail ecosystem, which is really, really hard to do in grocery because households tend to not change their grocery spend all that much year on year. So if we can gain share of wallet by offering uh, you know, a true omni-channel experience and omni-channel options, that's pretty powerful. So that's what we're looking to do rather than avoid anyone. Great. Now, Vic, we'll put Carrie in our soundproof booth so she can't hear your response. I'm <laughs> oh, that, I was looking forward to that. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you work with a number of brands and their digital strategies. You know, what, in your perspective, do you think makes Peapod successful? Well, I mean, I think other than having a brilliant person lead their marketing and myself and my team, you know, I think <laughs> I think there are a couple things that Carrie mentioned on and a few things that we see as well. Product, their product is really good. You know, the percent of successful deliveries on time is astronomical. It's really phenomenal. The experience, Peapod's been around now 20 years, 20 plus years. And I think Carrie spoke earlier of the challenges of getting into the business. And here we've got Peapod who's been doing this since the late 80s. You can't really replace that experience. I think Peapod has something great going for it that even you know Amazon wasn't able to buy in Whole Foods, and that is Peapod's only serving a small portion of the U.S., but has you know something like two thousand store locations, whereas Whole Foods nationwide only has about four hundred and fifty. And so you've got all that brand equity from all those stores, you've got all that data from the stores, the customers, all of those sorts of things, which I think is an enormous advantage to Peapod. And, you know, not to sound too brown nosy, but I think Peapod has great leadership, right? When you look at Carrie and her experience, you look at the rest of the team over there and their experience and where they've come from, not only from the grocery delivery spot, but, you know, Carrie came from, you know, running marketing for eBay, things like that. When you combine all those things together, grocery experience, store experience, customer experience, and leadership, generally that's going to point a company in the right direction. I think those are the things that we have found in working with them for the past several years that we have found made our jobs a bit easier and made it much easier to affect change and made it much easier to ensure marketing has been successful. And in turn, Peapod be successful as well. Well, congratulations to both of you. It sounds like a, a successful business, very strategically poised, in my own opinion, based on just the business fundamentals to really pay much more attention to going forward. So in my I hold market, I guess my market I hold banner, so to speak, would be food line. So maybe I'll see if there's a future, You're absolutely future partnership. Right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Maybe there's a future partnership. Sounds to me a lot, though, like maybe you would be ordering online through Peapod and not necessarily going That's true. Online. Call me crazy. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. So, you know, one of the things I, I think listeners love is to kind of get to know each of the individuals that come on the show. And so let's switch gears a little bit. And I love asking this question. I'll ask Carrie, you can respond first and then Vic, you can follow on. As you think about who you are today, you know, was there ever an experience in your past that kind of signifies or defines who you've become? Yeah, man, this, this one is tough to ask because quite frankly, I don't think I'm all that interesting of a person, but I would say probably what defines me most is I, I would describe myself as a modern nomad. I've moved 14 times, actually 14 times at last count. I kind of stopped counting after 14. I lived in three countries across two different continents, but I actually spent my formative years, my formative adult years living overseas. And I think that inevitably that makes you a pretty adaptable person. 
but it also makes you a very curious person. And I think that that's reflected in, in my career. I started in traditional packaged goods, working for Procter & Gamble straight out of college. And that was a world-class traditional strategic brand marketing opportunity. Being trained as a general manager, really spent nearly a decade working in the U.S. as well as internationally, but then really bounced around. I worked for a, a consulting, a strategic consulting company that was working in the sustainability space based in London, then went to eBay and was really leading the buyer experience team for the fashion vertical, and then ended up at a Midwestern grocery e-commerce company. So I've bounced around. And I think that that's just really reflective of the fact that I'm, I'm very comfortable going into to new industries, to new brands, to new countries, to new companies. And it's actually something that, that energizes me as well. Got it. How about you, Vic? You know, I think there are kind of two things. I think professionally, I was really lucky in that out of school, just like anybody else, I had no idea really what I wanted to do. And I sort of dumb lucked into this little marketing agency that was run by two incredible women, a woman named Misty Locke and another woman named Cheryl Pingle. This is when Google and all of those things were first starting. And I was very lucky to be able to grow up learning from them, learning their business sense, learning how they approach relationships and marketing and building a business. I think that's something... On top of that, you know, just the way that they carried themselves and the morals of their company, and they built a really incredible company. So I think that's one of the things that, that has been really impactful for me in my professional careers, being able to learn from from great people like Misty and Cheryl and so many others along the way. And the second thing I would say is that I had a little bit of a unique childhood and that I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. I mean, quite honestly, the middle of nowhere, Texas, and uh, to the point where we had to drive an hour and a half, sometimes two hours each way to go to school. And I had this really interesting piece of growing up in the middle of nowhere and running around outside with you know all of our farm animals and all that, and then getting dressed up in a, a jacket and a tie to go to school during the week. And I think seeing both of those perspectives has been really interesting. And so I think both of those things really help form who I am and kind of how I approach people and life and business and all of those things. So I've been very lucky in those aspects. Well, Carrie, let's talk, go back to you and tell me what drives you, what fuels you to do what you do. Well, this morning, about six cups of coffee, <laughs> as opposed to my usual four. No, I, I think what drives me personally is I've got three daughters, 12, 15, and about to be 18. And I think always intellectually, there was the mindset that wasn't so much as, as being a role model, but trying to find that right balance between showing them that you can go out into the world, you can have a career, you can have a family, but also mindful of the fact that it is hard and being really honest with them that you know some days are better than others. Some days I feel like I'm dropping multiple balls on my head, but it's okay. And I think I'm really open and transparent in having those conversations, celebrating the victories, but also being honest when days are tough and, and I'm tired. And so I think what drives me personally is constantly trying to find the right balance between all of the things that I'm trying to do and achieve and be on a work front, but also making sure that all of those things on the home front are taking precedence and, and priority as well. And so it's kind of a boring subject, you know, a balance, but it's something that I'm trying to do every day and, and just finding a, a way to be a great mom, but also to be a, an interesting person with interests and activities that happen outside the home. And I think most of the time I get it right. I, I think sometimes I, I spectacularly get it wrong, but you know, it's, it's fun. And as, as my daughters have gotten older, you know, it's really lovely to be able to have these conversations and they are also, um, you know, have increasingly busy lives. And so it's kind of fun to have these conversations with my daughters about what's important and what's not important. And, and it's okay not to be perfect all the time. We all make mistakes and we're all just doing our best. 
I love that. I love that. It's okay to not be perfect all the time. That's great advice. Well, Vic, what about you? What fuels you? What drives you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's too different than what Carrie shared. I mean, I think my family is my number one thing that drives me. I waited till I was a little bit older to have kids. I, I have uh, just a two and a half year old and nine month old. And when they came along, kind of everything changed perspective on work and time and what's fun and all of those things sort of changed. And from all aspects, you know, my family is definitely the number one thing that drives me forward. I want to be successful for them. I want to be a good example to them. I want to be a good dad. You know, I want to be all those things. And so I think having kids and having a wife and having a family are are sort of the great things that cause you to look at yourself and make sure that you are being the person that you want to be. And so, you know, for me, that's number one. And then professionally, I really like to build. I'm not a good small piece in a huge company. I'm someone who likes to build and tinker and play and it's obviously really rewarding whenever you see the thing you built be successful. And it's also very much a punch to the gut whenever you see the thing you build not be successful. But at the same time, that sort of motivates me to want to go tinker a little bit more and build a little bit more. And it kind of re-energizes me in a way too. So I think those are the two things that really, really fuel me more than anything else. Got it. That's good. Most marketers are students of the business. And so I'm curious if there's brands or companies or causes that you each follow or you think other people should take notice of. And maybe we'll start with Carrie again. Yeah, I think in general, and maybe this comes from my nomadic lifestyle, I tend to, to follow a lot of companies that are outside of the U.S. And, and I think in general, people in the U.S. or in, in the Western Hemisphere have really not taken as much notice of some of the Chinese e-commerce companies, the, the Tencents and the Alibabas of the world. I mean, the, the scale that they have is is just absolutely staggering. And we, we always refer back to you know Walmart and, and Amazon and some of the you know the, the 800-bound gorillas that, that we're familiar with in in the industry. But when you look at this, the size of these companies that are Chinese-based and, and quite frankly, the technologies that they're leveraging and the user experiences they're creating, it's not just about the scale, but it's also about the technologies that they're creating and the networks that they are making. It's pretty impressive. So I think everyone should be a, a student of what's happening in Asia with some of the e-commerce companies because there's actually quite a bit of innovation, homegrown innovation that's happening there. And then I think from a cause, I'm going to go back to those girls again, you know, paradigm paradoxically, working in the technology, at least for me, has given me some Luddite tendencies, right? Because I, I know the power of technology and, and I get excited about technology and, and how it can transform experiences and brands and, and industries. But I'm also very cognizant of the, the downside of technology. So one of the things that uh, I've really encouraged all of my girls to do is, is to not just be a passive consumer of technology and, and screens, right? To, so all of them for better or worse, have some familiarity. There's an organization called Girls Who Code. They're amazing. And their their whole mantra is about making, you know, kind of demystifying technology and, and making it accessible. And it's just like learning another language, right? And I think it's really important that, you know, technology is an inevitable part of all of our lives. But to know a little bit more about it, how it's created, how it's leveraged, how it can be used is, you know, everybody should have their Girl Scout or their Boy Scout badge in technology. And, you know, organizations like uh, Girls Who Code who are making it accessible accessible and free. It's pretty cool. No, I agree. I agree. Those are those are phenomenal. I have a daughter too. So we all have daughters. Oh, yay. <laughs> we have a maker's club at her school where they learn to code. It started with Scratch and then moved to JavaScript. It's quite fascinating to watch because I can't even help her. You know, it's I know, just, right? I'm just amazed by what she can do. Well, good. Well, Vic, what about you? What are you monitoring or, or looking at and following? Yeah. You know, I think 
I'm very lucky in working on the agency side and that we get to look into a whole bunch of businesses and how they run and what their competitors do and all of those sorts of things. And so for us, we always try to try to look at who's the newcomer who's doing things completely different. And you know, there are two companies that kind of come to mind, both within the beauty industry that I think is really interesting. If you look at the way that Glossier has built their business and has completely transformed the way they market and the way that they look at customers and the way that they embrace their customers as the ambassadors of their brand, it's absolutely phenomenal. And they've done it so quickly that the other folks can't even keep up. On the other side, you look at, at some of the Kendo brands. So Kendo is the beauty division of LVMH. They own brands like Marc Jacobs Beauty, but they also own Fenty, which is Rihanna's beauty line. And in one product release, they actually changed the entire beauty industry. They launched with 40 different shades, whereas typically you would see shades 10, maybe 20, but they launched with 40 different shades. Immediately, they included the entire range of races of skin tones, of all of that into their product. And in one product launch, they've now become the standard from which everyone else in the beauty industry, the Estee Lauders of the group, you know, all the other big holding companies now have to follow. So I think it's really interesting to see how quickly one small brand has transformed the entire beauty industry. But the second side, we always like to look at who are the old stalwarts who are actually changing their business and still surviving. I think one of the more interesting cases the last year or so has been Nordstrom. You know, Nordstrom has a, a very storied history and it's pretty phenomenal. But if you look at the last 18 months, two years or so, it's been interesting. They decide they're going to sell themselves. Oh, shoot. Nobody actually wants to buy them. Now what are they going to do? They actually kind of go back and they dig back in and they tweak product offering. They tweak, tweak stores. They tweak digital. And now they're on the rise and they're actually at the forefront of some of the things that you know, large wholesale companies are doing. And so to see a company that's so large and sort of so traditional in one sense, be able to be so flexible and move so quickly, I think is, is really interesting and well worth watching. As far as individual causes, you know, I, I think there are a bunch that are well worth time and all of those sorts of things. But there's a woman by the name of Jan Langbein. She's the chairman of two different organizations down in Dallas, one called Genesis Women's Shelter, which is an incredible organization where any woman that's in an abused, abusive relationship or abusive situation can show up on their door any day of the week, and they'll give you an apartment, a place to live, protection, legal representation, support, makeup, clothes. They can help you figure out your finances, you name it. No questions asked. And the second one is called Austin Street Center, which is an emergency homeless shelter, which every day, not only do they shelter you know, 400 to 500 different people who are, again, not the chronically homeless, but the people who really need that emergency shelter right there, but they provide you with food. They provide you with training. You get you know, your square meals each day, all of those sorts of things. And this, and this incredible woman runs both of these organizations. And it's really phenomenal what they've done. She's built them from sort of one little room all the way up to the women's shelter now has something like three dozen apartments that they give to people long term. And the uh, homeless shelter has full on training programs or even moving people into small houses that they can now begin to rebuild their lives at. And it's all because of the passion of this one woman. It's really incredible and well worth checking out if you have time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have one more question for you both. I appreciate your time today. I want to understand where you think the future of marketing is going to go. And maybe Carrie, we'll start with you again. 
Yeah, I think this one I can answer pretty quickly, which is the theme is it's complicated and it's fragmented. And the role of data is, is both undeniable and unavoidable. You know, a successful marketer going forward, you better get comfortable with data and data sets and, and you better figure out SQL sooner than later. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a data analyst, but you've got to be able to sit in a room and ask good questions of the folks that do have more sophistication with the data sets. But with all that complexity, getting lost in the woods is really, really easy. So it's going to be as important as ever to focus on the basics, not 22 different KPIs. Great if you have a dashboard and you've got all 22 of those KPIs on it, but really distilling it down to what are the three or four metrics that are really going to define success and are really indicative of what the progress is towards the business goals as a whole is really critical. So I think that's the challenge for any marketing leader going forward is just managing that minutia and the, and the technicalities of an industry and a function that is ever more complicated given the rise of data, but also being able to pull back and see the forest for the trees and to, to continue to make sure that you're on a path that makes sense. That's the challenge going forward. Well, Vic, what do you see for the future of marketing? Oh man, I see a whole bunch. Most of it's a little gray, but I, th- I think there are a couple things that I would say. Number one, I think the obvious answer is, is automation. I think so much of what folks do digitally now is largely going to be automated in a far a nearer future than most people think. I think typically though what comes with automation quite often is things become a little bit vanilla. And so I think the challenge for marketers both on the brand side and at agency side is how we can automate all of the processes we need to be really effective, but make sure at the same time we're bringing really creative thinking and creative approaches to where we don't all just become this this gray where we're just shouting messages at people. And sure, they're very specific people, but we're still just shouting these generic messages. And so there's some balance in the next three to five years between automating the daily tasks of marketing, but swinging the pendulum back in the other direction to make sure we're still offering truly creative approaches to talking to people. And I think if we get that balance right, then I think people will be really successful. And I think the way people look at marketing will, will likely be a little bit different as well. Well, Thank you so much for both of you coming on the show. It's been interesting to get both the client and the agency perspective. So can't thank you enough. Absolutely. It's been really fun. We appreciate you having us. Yeah, total pleasure, Alan. Thanks. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart and this is Marketing Today. 